Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in. And this is the second of the week because so much is going on and there is so much to make sense of. And your questions have been amazing and enlightening, kind of across a range of issues that, as promised or almost promised, I don't think it was a firm pledge, uh, but as almost pledged, today is a question time special through which we will cover a whole variety of different themes, beginning with the Middle East, going on to all kinds of other different topics because we didn't get time to get through as many questions as I had hoped earlier in the week. Um, Before we begin our question time special, where I'll go order, order, and we'll have uh, question time, thanks to all of those who uh, came to King's Place the other day for the live rock and roll politics. Uh, Thank you to Helen Muller for her wonderful homemade jam. And as Helen suggested, watch out Helen the Baker. Uh, Actually, Helen Muller said she didn't want to compete with Helen the Baker, so I've got some great homemade jam. Uh, That was fantastic. Great to see Joe Ruffles, who had flown in from Berlin for the show. And the legendary, as I call him, columnist uh, William Keegan and Chris from the Hitchin Festival. We had a good conversation at the end, who I met at the in Hitchin. And uh, thank you all those who bought the book at the end of the show. And it was great to chat to the legendary Lawrence Holvey, who bought a whole load of books, um, which I happily signed. That's turning points. And by the way. Uh, I'm in Shoreham at the Rope Tackle Art Centre next uh, Wednesday. And at the end, I'll be signing books as well. And they're great for you or for a Christmas present for those you love or those you hate, you know, who aren't interested in what we're interested in. You can give them a copy of this book. Anyway, I'll be signing copies at the end of the show at the uh, Rope Tackle Art Centre if you are interested. And the next King's Place live show will be on uh, Monday, December the 18th, the annual Christmas special, Rock and Roll Politics, the Christmas special, where we'll be looking back at the year and looking ahead to what will almost certainly be an election year. On that front, uh, the prediction I gave the audience live and on the stream was... How many of you predict that the election will be next October, uh, October 2024? And I thought the margin would be bigger because that's when I think it will be. Uh, But it was about two to one. uh, You were saying yes to October. There were quite a lot in the live audience predicting that Sunak would carry on until January 2025, including uh, William Keegan, the Observer columnist. He said he thought Prime Minister just carry on in the hope that something will turn up. So uh, when we get together for the Christmas special, we'll look back at the whole year uh, and look ahead to what I think will be the election year. Um, And uh, tickets have just gone on sale. So you can get them at the King's Place uh, website for that one. And now, over to your questions. And for those of you who want to join in the never-ending conversation, uh, the email is steverick14 at iCloud.com. steverick14 at iCloud.com. And many of you have responded to the podcast last week and indeed the week before 
which focused on Israel, Gaza. A really interesting one because one of the reflections, and it's reflected again in some of your emails to me today, um, I kind of said the only model of hope is what happened in Northern Ireland when the likes of Jerry Adams and others concluded that the root of violence was not working and that they would return or turn to politics and a non-violent route and the peace process began to kick in. But a really interesting email from the Reverend Canon Paul R. Bathnot, who is based, uh, his diocese is, is, well, I've been to his church actually in Dublin when we were there uh, recently. Anyway, this is a very interesting warning about drawing too many comparisons with Northern Ireland and the troubles which looked beyond any kind of resolution until there was one. But this is what uh, Paul says. I hope you and all the cooperative are keeping well. I couldn't resist emailing in to the ever-splendid podcast after your musings on possible parallels between Northern Ireland and the tragedy unfolding in Gaza, Israel. On the surface, there is a parallel to be drawn. In the Middle East, we have a conflict between a terrorist group and a state who wish to stamp the threat out. Indeed, in Northern Ireland, where I'm from, it's not uncommon to find Israeli flags flying from lampposts in unionist loyalist towns and Palestinian ones flying in nationalist Republican ones. In Dublin, where I'm living and working, the sentiment across civic society and in political life appears to be more pro-Palestinian in nature. But these Irish political fault lines, when applied to the Middle East, appear quite crude and lack nuance. For example, Hamas's original attack on Israel was a raid from one sovereign state to another. Hamas also attacked Israeli cities with rocket attacks from another jurisdiction. Whilst the IRA used the border to evade justice, the troubles, for the most part, were contained internally to the United Kingdom. Also, the primary aim of Irish republicanism is to end any sort of British presence on the island of Ireland. It's primarily a political goal. This goal spilled over into sectarianism during the Troubles. Hamas's identity rests in radical Islamist beliefs. Another point which could be made is that the Good Friday Agreement has brought the political representatives of the IRA into a part of the government of the UK. This is not a two-state solution. The GFA, the Good Friday Agreement, is a way of making one Northern Ireland acceptable to all. The current situation in Gaza, Israel, is about two states living side by side, and whether this can be achieved peacefully. Yeah, um, so huge uh, differences here, and and, and, uh, others are highlighted uh, by Paul. Um, And you are right, there are no parallels really with the fundamental Islamic nature of Hamas and what were the political objectives of the IRA pursued violently. Um, Similarly, the parallels between an internal solution to what the IRA sought 
and the two-state solution that some, though not Hamas, seek, uh, uh, and, and not really the current Israeli government seek. I mean, Netanyahu has shown no interest in reviving it. Um, are very, very different objectives. I suppose the only kind of grain of hope is this. Now, it probably won't be possible with Hamas because you say they come from a wholly different kind of background uh, where comparisons are very limited. But does, in the end, these attempts to resolve disputes by violence work? And um, I think that is a question that you dare to hope some of those involved now at prevailing through violence might begin to ask themselves. For example, if and by the time this podcast comes out, it might have already started, is Israel has in effect moved into uh, Gaza with their ground troops. Um, what then? Uh, and it's by no means clear. Uh, there's a, a very good email I got. Uh, I might not have time to read it all out, um, where this question is posed, what happens next? A question which, incidentally, British politicians who are hiding behind this evasive formula of support for Israel to defend itself as long as it stays within the international law uh, are not really addressing um, and so you dare to hope that perhaps those who have actively sought a two-state solution within the Palestinian communities within Israel might have more space when the violence has played out bloodily, but without a kind of resolution. Uh, but Paul, thank you so much for highlighting the very different situation in Northern Ireland. Um, I'm going to stay with this for a bit longer because there was a great email from Susan Lintott who um, reminded us of a fantastic thing that I hadn't read from President Obama, who wrote with great nuance um, about the situation on his website. And she compared it to the kind of blundering, uh, linear uh, kind of language of Keir Starmer and indeed Rishi Sunak. Um, I haven't got to, it's a long statement from Obama, but he dares to go into detail about while supporting, you know, the usual Biden thing of Israel's right to defend itself, but how it executes its response um, is so important. And he goes into considerable detail about what Israel could and should not do in the light of that. And I really recommend it. He has language. Um, and Keir Starmer too often deploys words as if they can be retracted when necessary, if necessary, and if they last a bit longer, the words can remain in place. And um, Anyway... I do recommend it. If you Google Obama and his website, you'll see it, and, and, and it's a very useful uh, exercise. We might return to the Middle East, but let's move on to some of your other uh, questions. This is another recommendation from Alison Keyes. Um, 
we were talking last week about we had a email about whether as i have argued brexit was inevitable from the moment cameron called the referendum uh, or whether it was down to the interventions of johnson farage and others that turned um uh, Brexit into a reality with the campaign that they adopted. I, I think it was inevitable that the campaign really played only a minor part. Anyway, Alison says something here which is interesting and depressing. We should all watch it. I hadn't even come across it. I had accepted the general view of the role of Farage and all in the Brexit referendum. Uh, but hearing your different take reminded me of something which I think does back up your position. I watched last week a documentary on BBC4, so it'll still be on the iPlayer, made by the actor Michael Sheen, and first shown in February 2015, this is before the referendum, about the political history of the Welsh Valleys, and particularly why those people with a deep and distinguished history of political engagement weren't really bothering to vote anymore. It's called Michael Sheen's Valleys Rebellion. I'm definitely going to watch it. Watching it now, despite him only being able to speak to a small number of people, felt like having the Brexit vote, in which, as far as I know, this area voted heavily for leave, explained. There's so much pent-up rage and disappointment on display from ordinary people who just have a zero faith in politicians uh, or the process of politics. They feel ignored and forgotten. It looks blindingly obvious now that given the opportunity, they were just going to deliver the powers that be a kicking, and Cameron gave them that opportunity. That explains why Brexit happens, in my view, uh, as Alison suggests. So we should all have a look at that Sheen documentary, Michael Sheen's Valley's Rebellion, before the referendum had taken place. And the scale of the disillusionment and detachment from politics is why I remain wary about the term centre ground and centrists, we centrists that have dominated British politics for so long. Um, there's a very good email. I might not have time to read it out in this question time special, but we'll do a special on it from a member of the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative trying to define uh, centrism and why he thinks he's a centrist. Uh, I remain wary of the term, and I think it partly explains the detachment. See, phrases like those that were left behind used during the Brexit referendum conjures up what uh, Michael Sheen apparently discovered in his Valley's Rebellion. And taking back control was the counter to reconnecting with the left behind. They should both be left of centre terms. It's about the role of the government and state or mediating agencies reconnecting those left behind. But if you just talk in terms of, I don't know, centrist banality about, um, uh, uh, you know, the role of the individual, the role of the, you know, reform and modernisation... These terms are so imprecise, it's very hard to reconnect with the disillusioned. Um, so anyway, yeah, I think Brexit was going to happen, and just partly to give the so-called elite a kicking. And I know that the juxtaposition, people versus the elite, is really, really dangerous, as we've discussed many, many times. Okay, 
On a kind of related theme, at the podcast earlier in the week, I was looking, trying to go back to the origins of the crisis in Rishi Sunak's Tory party, which extends well beyond Rishi Sunak, even though he has proven to be, in my view, a uh, poor and uh, unsophisticated leader at a time when massive doses of sophistication were required. David Ward writes really interestingly, I was considering the point you made in the last episode about why the Conservatives didn't change after the 1997 election as much as Labour did in the 80s. Yeah, that was the essence of my argument, that after being slaughtered in 97, there was no serious, intelligent post-mortem within the Conservative Party. Indeed, uh, they repeated some of the errors in the build-up to 97 with an even greater intensification. Um, anyway, back to David's email. Is the reason for this that after the end of the Bretton Woods consensus in the 70s, up to essentially now, the global approach to get growth was much more favourable for the Tories? As Callaghan told the Labour conference in 1976, this meant left-wing parties had to undergo a lot of thought and change. If that's the case, then, since the Thatcher-Reagan model appears to have run out of road now, maybe it will be the Tories who have to do the big soul-searching after a 2024-25 to 25 election. And now I'm going to comment on that because it's an interesting observation. And this is where we delve deep and where context matters. But David adds a PS, so please take a note. Because you know I'm always asking you to leave reviews, only if you like the podcast, of course. Um, because it makes a difference, bizarrely, to the reach of the podcast and the extent to which we extend the cooperative. So David adds a PS. With regard to those five-star reviews, collective members listening on Spotify just need to go to the Rock and Roll Politics pod page using their mobile and there's a button directly below the title and biog i've done it and it's super easy david thank you for doing it so those on spotify please leave that kind of review and those who listen on the iphone it's really easy to leave a review uh, so please do because it helps us all in a curious way uh back to the point uh yeah that that is interesting. By 97, the ideological tide was still not challenging Tories to the point where they really had to consider their kind of basic ideological verve. Uh, indeed, New Labour, to some extent, uh, only to some extent, but to some extent, paid tribute to the kind of ideological tides of the 80s and early 90s. Um, and it began in Britain uh, with uh, Callaghan in his famous 76 conference speech saying you can't spend your way out of uh, economic crisis, out of recession. And this was seen, though I don't think this was the full intention, actually, as Labour moving on from Keynesianism and to some extent, although that certainly wasn't Callaghan's intention, of endorsing Thatcherism uh, that uh, came about three years later. What we have now, I think, is uh, uh, in a way that Keir Starmer has not fully picked up, a kind of... Uh, 
they, they have reached the ideological end of the road uh, with that kind of Thatcherite, Reaganite approach to economics. Um, and it's not being challenged necessarily by labour, but by events and uh, tidal forces. And now, whether that will trigger a really deep, intelligent post-mortem if the Tories lose, we will have to wait and see. Um, it, it, I'm not wholly confident that the representatives they've got at the top of the party will be up for it, but let's see. In the end, David, I think you're right. The, um, the, the rethink will mean that finally the Conservative Party will have to leave the ideological tides of the 1980s behind and therefore leave behind the ideological kind of attachments of Truss, Sunak in his own different way and so on. And I, I think at some point there will be a return to a one-nation Toryism which recognises the importance of the state. And it could come about through different routes. Um, Nick Timothy, uh, uh, when I interviewed him, of course he was uh, Chief of Staff for Theresa May until the 2017 election, said his plan was to try and get the Tories to a more Christian Democrat position. But because of the shallow way politics is reported, that was seen, or May's period in charge was seen as a shift to the right because the columnists uh, on the whole put Cameron on the centre ground, whereas Cameron was further to the right of certainly Nick Timothy. Anyway, yeah, thank you very much uh, for your question. Um, now, let's go on to, uh, where do we go next? Uh, oh, yeah, Charlie Beaumont. We're back to the Middle East. It's about, um, yeah, I, I do question when hearing about any conflict, what percentage of the populations involved actually want and support it. It's very evident that many Israelis hold their PM responsible for the crisis occurring at all. And I've only heard dissenting voices from Palestinians in Gaza about the behaviour of Hamas. Do you think that allies of the protagonists and the media provide a sufficient challenge to the methods chosen by the protagonists to conduct a war? Do we need to be confronting them with the diversity of viewpoints amongst each of the respective populations? Yeah, I think to some extent that does happen um, in, in the media, to be fair. As the horror unfolds, uh, you, you get the cries of despair on both sides. But the, uh, where I think it, uh, Charlie makes an interesting point, you know, you, people talk about uh, Israel, Hamas, um, as if that is a kind of uh, one entity, you know, Israel, one entity, Hamas and Gaza, when, of course, the people, in inverted commas, I mentioned in the podcast earlier this week, there had been a massive demonstration against Netanyahu and his government uh, days before uh, the horrors of October the 7th. Um, there's still no enthusiasm for his leadership, um, which in itself makes him more dangerous, I think, because he wants to appear, in inverted commas, strong, having been uh, leading when there had been this breakdown of security on October the 7th. Likewise, it's impossible 
to measure now the level of support for Hamas and what it did in October the 7th within Gaza as they become besieged. It's like, you know, why, why don't you fly the Israeli flag or why don't you fly the uh, Palestinian flag? So it raises big questions about what you are parading as you fly the flag. Um, and I know lots of people who have of course, uh, have been, was horrified by what happened in Israel on October the 7th, but will not fly the flag because they will see that as support for Netanyahu and his uh, still pretty wild coalition, even if it's changed a bit post-October the 7th. Anyway, uh, yeah, the people will be, on the whole, in inverted commas, the people, terrified and horrified by what is unfolding. Great to hear from uh, Louise and Sam, who I met at the Yorkley Book uh, Festival. They came to my talk on the book, uh, Turning Points, that I've got out at the moment. And part of the argument of the book is that quite often Britain went close to historic turning points and failed to turn. And why is it that Britain failed to turn, whether it's in, in the light of sort of economic and industrial challenges or international challenges. For example, internationally with Suez in 1956, it raised huge questions about Britain's place in the world. We are still asking the same questions now. Anyway, Louise and Mike say, our question is, to what extent do you believe the Treasury and its so-called orthodoxy can be seen to constitute one of the most significant barriers to change when it comes to British economic policy? Furthermore, do you believe there is any hope of a potential Labour government introducing significant changes to economic policy and thus becoming a change maker? Uh, yeah, this is a key question. The Treasury unquestionably I think, is more of a problem than uh, an institution to revere and admire. It is all-powerful. It will be all-powerful uh, under Rachel Reeves in the next Labour government. Um, uh, Rishi Sunak is a product, really, of Treasury thinking in many respects. The Treasury is very wary, for example, of infrastructure projects, was always horrified by HS2. Uh, Sunak who doesn't believe the state should do very much, uh, would have been personally horrified by HS2. Uh, and instead of thinking, right, it's been executed with wasteful profligacy, how do we execute it better? Uh, he just scrapped it. And that would be something the Treasury would have encouraged uh, in his thinking too. Uh, the problem is how to deal with Treasury orthodoxy. Uh, some chances go in there with a willfulness uh, to challenge it. Uh, Gordon Brown and Ed Balls went in with an absolute determination to follow a programme they had thought through uh, in the build-up to 97. And they, to some extent, did at times challenge Treasury orthodoxy. Uh, but it's difficult. Um, I think Rachel Reeves, although she has, I think, quite an interesting set of ideas um, which she outlined when she went to Washington which I'll refer to in more detail again at some point uh, because it points I think to quite a hopeful 
a set of values that she will bring. But she is more orthodox, say, than Brown and Bulls, as she said herself at her book launch earlier this week. Um, she's got a book out about uh, female economists. And um, when she was asked about institutional change, she said, look, I was in the Bank of England. I admire these institutions. Um, so I don't think uh, there will be significant institutional change. When Harold Wilson tried it, he set up the Department of Economic Affairs as, as a counter to the Treasury to try and drive growth. And he put the Cabinet Minister, George Brown, in charge of it. George Brown on his day could be brilliant, but a lot of the time he was drunk and uh, it didn't work and it was soon scrapped. Um, so how to counter it? But I think it is a key question. There is a kind of orthodoxy there. If you're on Twitter, there are quite a few Treasury officials and former Treasury officials who tweet. And it's very interesting. They, they tweet along very economically orthodox lines. Uh, so good point. And thanks for coming to the Ilkley uh, Book Festival. Um, now, let's go to Matt Watts. Um, at the previous King's Place show, you asked, would Labour win an overall majority? At the time, I voted no for the following reasons. The sheer mountain Labour has to climb to achieve a majority of one is almost unprecedented. The seat slipped from SNP to Labour in Scotland will help, but don't reduce the Tory numbers. Then there's the Tory press and the ability of the Tories to run a targeted social media campaign as they did with Brexit and with no end of dirty tricks. I thought then, at that King's Place show, a Lib Lab arrangement may prevail. However, see this is interesting how a mood in politics can change quite quickly. Following the conference season and the by-election results, I think the picture is becoming clearer. I would now change my vote to yes, Labour will win an overall majority. Firstly, the scale of the by-election swings go to show that unlikely scenarios are entirely within the realms of possibility. The anti-Tory mood feels dramatically stronger than in 1996-97 when I was doing my GCSEs at the time. Ah, right. So you didn't vote in that one. Um, you must have been, what, 16? when Labour won in 97. The Tories have nothing to show for themselves and basically everything is shit. Yeah, it is. There's, uh, um, yeah, I was, yeah, God, travelling on trains, it just drives me crazy. None of them seem to be working. So there we are. So that King's Place show was only about, what, four or five weeks ago uh, when um, Matt voted that there would be, to predict, a hung parliament. He now thinks Labour are going to win an overall majority. As a contrast, uh, Sean Farrell, we hasn't made a prediction, and he since emailed me to, to make clear that he might have accidentally left Labour anyway uh, by uh, lapsing his uh, payments, whatever you have to pay to be a member. But he expresses his disillusionment by saying he's emailed Keir Starmer anyway, so he's going, even if he's inadvertently gone partly because of the response to uh, the crisis in Israel-Palestine, which uh, he says, and Shaw's obviously was a Labour Party member, even if he gave up some time ago, distilled everything that made me uneasy about uh, Keir Starmer. Terrible at politics, crude positioning, 
lack of leadership and then lies when reality dawns and he's caught out. It's utterly depressing. I'm not a Corbynite. I joined the party when Kinnock was leader. But from what I read, the soft left aren't welcome either in Keir Starmer's party, so he should be pleased that I'm no longer a member. And so there we are from the soft left. So sort of a contrast, really. We've got a prediction from Matt Watts that Labour will win an overall majority, having a few weeks earlier thought that they wouldn't. And from Sean, disillusionment from the soft left to the point where he will no longer be a member. So there we are. Uh, I told you we've got a wide range of questions. And there's still loads more we've got to get through, which we'll have to return to early next week. And I promise you we will, um, beginning with uh, Fraser Ode's uh, question about Enoch Powell and Heath and where that leaves Heath in comparison to recent prime ministers. Uh, yeah, uh, more from so many of you on so many different uh, topics. So, You'll have to tune in again early next week uh, where I will uh, won't be the normal podcast. This has been the question time just to read out some of the questions uh, because, as I say, kind of so varied. It's a guide to the current urgent themes of global and British politics. So, yeah, order, order, order. Uh, we finished our question time session in this uh, extra podcast. We've got to get together very soon to uh, make sense of it all. Thanks again for all of you for engaging in our never-ending discussion, debate, and see you all again early next week. And if you are on the south coast or nearby, see you at the Rope Tackle in Shoreham next Wednesday. Yeah. Have a good weekend. Take care. Bye. Bye.